It's in the heart of every single one of us to want to be remembered. We use words like heritage, legacy. Here's some things that I brought today that helped me with that whole concept. Um, this is our family crest. And um, the word styles at the bottom. Now, just, you know, I didn't purchase this online. I didn't call some family crest company, you know, or figure out uh, familytree.com and, and order it. But this was given to me by my great grandfather. It was made uh, years and years ago. And uh, um, it was given to me because uh, I'm named after him. His name was Rufus. Theodore Styles. Now, I didn't carry the Rufus and Theodore all the way through, but they'd keep the R and the T. And so he gave this to me. In fact, um, he didn't give it to me personally, but uh, several years ago, uh, when they kind of cleared out the homestead in Blue Ridge, Georgia, and my parents went up there and they found all the stuff that my great-grandfather and great-grandmother had stored, uh, they kind of, I guess you could say, distributed it among all the siblings and that kind of came to my grandfather and to my dad and now to me. And so I see that hangs in my home office. I just see it a lot. It reminds me of kind of what the name means and the symbols here. And so I was always encouraged and exhorted to be true to my heritage and to pass that on. I have here also uh, something else that helps me a lot. This is my grandfather's Bible. Now, my, uh, my great-grandfather was a mayor and he kind of did things like that. My grandfather was a meat cutter. And was a great Christian man. And so just a few weeks ago, my dad gave me his Bible, uh, my grandfather's Bible. And so I said, well, Dad, seems like you ought to keep it. He said, I'm probably going to give it to you quicker than I want to admit anyway or something like that. And kind of laughed with me. But these two things uh, helped me remember my heritage. Kind of what's been passed on to me. You know what I find interesting about these items? Neither of these items really speak to possessions, like you know, you would leave in a will, like a big house. They don't speak to a bank account. They don't really speak to uh, the things you might find you know, at an estate sale. Like, man, he left me the boat. Or, uh, you know, I got a six-figure inheritance. None of those things speak to that. What they speak to is the person behind it, like my, my great-grandfather. Uh, just a, a real community-minded, uh, godly man who was a real patriarch for our family name. And then my grandfather, we knew him as Pop. And uh, he just was a crazy kind of guy. And so, um, you know, when I, when I see those things, I'm not reminded of possessions or power. I'm reminded of people who passed them on to me. And can I say to you that truly a heritage... Is something passed on to us that is a people-focused object. It's, a, it's something about people. You're, you're giving them legacy. It's not really possessions or property or philosophies or, or power. It truly is about people. And I don't think um, uh, a true heritage is passed on until we move beyond some of those tangible things to intangible things. That's when a heritage really becomes something about who we are and our name and what we're passing on to our children and on. That really sums up, that word heritage really describes the very end of Joseph's life. As he was responsible from his father Jacob to pass on some things that he was given. And I want us to notice as we close out our study in Joseph, what really summed up his heritage 
and how he saw his whole life. Because if anybody had a number of things happen to them, if anybody had possessions or power or prestige, it was Joseph, didn't he? Remember? He was first of all in a pit. Remember that in Genesis 37 to 50? And he's like, man, I know about hard times, but then he became this, uh, this, uh, sellable slave in different encounters. Then he became the manager of Potiphar's house. Then he became this prisoner. He kind of went on this roller coaster ride. When all was said and done, Joseph has landed himself, so to speak, in the, in the vice president's chair of Egypt. So is this the culmination of his life? Is his life and his, his heritage all about going from, from rags to riches? And becoming the vice president after you've been like the vice prisoner, so to speak. Is this really what his life entails? And I think we're going to see in Genesis 45 how Joseph saw his heritage. So turn there, would you? Genesis 45. I want us to look this morning at this climactic chapter. This chapter that really uh, spells out for us the way Joseph saw his life. Genesis chapter 45. I want to just simply remind you that we are jumping in the middle here of several chapters that speak of Joseph's last few years and the encounters he had with his brothers and with his father. So you need to realize that probably reading chapters 42, 43, and 44 would be a really big help. So maybe later today, and you probably read some of those in your lighthouse already in preparation for today, and that will help you. But we're going to kind of jump right here at this climactic chapter. This chapter really brings to the surface everything that, that has happened and kind of summarizes what will happen. So Genesis 45, here's how Joseph sees his entire life and why he existed. Okay, Genesis 45, verse 1. The Bible says that Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. In other words, he had brought his brothers back before him. This is about the second or third time he's been with them. They do not know it's him yet. And so he's been kind of gaming with them, shall we say. I don't want to use the word teasing, but he's, he's definitely up to something to try to win their confidence and bring them all back together. And, but apparently the emotion, the passion, the, the memories of all these years just became overwhelming. So he could not contain any longer. He sends out all the Egyptians and he's left only with his brothers, the Bible says. And it says in verse 1 there that no one was with him but his brothers when he made himself known to them. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Here's what I think happened. He probably said to his attendants and those who were waiting on the vice president, I guess his cabinet or all those folks that are there kind of helping him, he just became overwhelmed with emotion. He said, guys, you got to all leave, but you can stay. So maybe they're out in the wings of the hallways and they're like, hey, what's going on in there? What's Joseph doing hanging out with these ten uh, guys that he's been toying with for several months? And all of a sudden they hear maybe through the walls or down the hallway these loud moans and these cries. Joseph's telling his brothers, guys, it's me. Well, they heard about it. I suspect some of them then ran around the town perhaps or ran to different relatives or neighbors and said, guys, listen, something's going on with Joseph. We just heard him weeping and a-wailing. Man, something's up in the, in the house of the vice president. So the Egyptians heard, a, heard it initially in the house and then they told people about it and it says that the town began to hear about it. Here's how it says that Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. Verse 3. In the midst of great emotion, great passion, he says these first three words. I am Joseph. And I would love to have been there to hear that, wouldn't you? I mean, 22 years has passed from when Reuben and Judah, Simeon and Levi, they all sold their brother. 
They were going to kill him, remember? But Reuben came to his rescue and said, Guys, don't kill him. Dad is not going to like that. So Judah then says, Well, hey, let's just don't let this go to waste. Let's sell him. Let's make a profit. 22 years since that moment. And suddenly, you're brought face to face with this man that you're not, you don't think you recognize, but I suspect there may have been some talk among the brothers like, Hey, he looks oddly familiar. No, it couldn't be. No way. So they're whispering back and forth, and then suddenly Joseph reveals, I am Joseph. Now, those ten brothers just aren't near as spiritual as you and I. Would you agree with that? Because they got scared. And so would you and I. <laughs> Trust me. I would have been like, okay, Joseph, I'm sorry. I apologize. You know, I mean, I would have been like, fall on my knees, I'm sure. And sure enough, the Bible says here that they were terrified. Look at verse 3. They were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And they probably ought to have been. They tried to kill the man. And then Joseph, this is neat, in a moment of silence when perhaps they were wondering, what's going to happen now? Joseph, in his incredible, secure relationship with Christ, and in this uh, really mature way, he says to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said again, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Those are traumatic words, people. And you've got to read the, the previous chapters to get the full sense of this. But this has been months in coming. And I like the way Joseph, in a very mature and probably almost factual way, he says to them, hey, I'm Joseph, and that's right, I'm the one you sold to Egypt. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't end there like, okay, you sold me and now I'm going to get you back. He uses that as a base, those facts, to say, but let me show you what's happened since then. Look what he says. Do not be distressed, in verse 5. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. I suspect that was their first reaction. Way to go, Judah. We were going to kill him, but we sold him because, you know, you and Reuben felt like we needed to. And now, here we are, 22 years later, facing the guy we could have extinguished, but now he's going to extinguish us. I'm sure they were probably angry with themselves. From a human perspective, they were thinking vindication and uh, all these things about revenge were going to happen for Joseph's sake. But Joseph does not let that happen. He instead takes the focus and puts it right on the guy. Watch this he says here. Don't be angry with yourselves. Don't be distressed. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. One of the neat things about Joseph is that he could always elevate the present and help folks see it from God's perspective. Remember the temptation with Potiphar's wife? We called her Mrs. Potiphar. And what did he say? How can I sin against whom? Come on, folks, work with me. God. He didn't say, I can't sin against you or Mr. Potiphar. He elevated it to say, I can't sin against God. And here in the same situation, he elevates his vision and perspective. He says, guys, you're all worried about human vindication and, and physical revenge. Listen, God sent me ahead of you. Relax. You're not in near as control as you think you are. You're as powerful as you thought you were. Isn't it neat how he just elevates? And suddenly, Joseph's like this guy that just bad things don't stick on him. No matter what life or what evil or what the enemy tries to do to him, he's got no Velcro. And man, just, he just is able to kind of live above it through the power of God. And he consistently brings people to that level with him. He says it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. 
Then he explains that, verse 6. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land. And they knew that because there had been a famine in their land. He said, there will be no plowing or reaping for five more years. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Hallelujah. God in His omniscience and sovereign providence took all the things that we would think were stumbling blocks and He used them as stepping stones in the life of Joseph. Not just for Joseph's sake, but according to this verse, for the entire Jewish nation. Now, let me explain something to you theologically. Listen very carefully. The word remnant there in verse 7 is a very interesting word. And it simply refers to this, this line, this, this few people that are left that would carry forth the line of Christ. And I want to say to you, if Joseph had not seen this from God's perspective and had been willing to embrace the various things that came his way, if he had not been willing to be faithful in all things without even knowing why, verse 12 shows us later that, you know what? Then his ten, uh, eleven brothers and all of their descendants would have been left destitute. Do you see that in verse 12? Destitute. That means ruined. No chance of hope. And if those 11 brothers and their father and that whole bunch of about 66 direct descendants, if they would have come to ruin, you know what that means? Now, I'm speaking here humanly. Watch me, church. That means that through then through Judah and those that were from his line, which include Ruth... And Jesse, the father of David, and then David, who was the, as uh, symbolically, that's who Christ came through. Christ is called the son of David. If those initial 11 brothers and their family were left to be destitute, guess who doesn't show up? Christ. Now, I realize spiritually you say, well, God would have found a way. You're right. That's just our God. But from a human level, the word remnant here is very important. It shows us that, that God was working a plan to save a very few amount of people. Because that was the very line that Christ was to come through. So at all costs, God would move the chess pieces, so to speak. He would arrange even the, the evil men of the world. God was in a, involved in something far greater than just feeding mouths. God was in, in the process of arranging people so that, that Christ would come thousands of years later. How important that Joseph obeyed. Even back in Potiphar's home. Are you listening, church? Even back in that pit. Even in that prison. All along the way that Joseph said, Lord, I don't have a clue why this is happening. But I trust you and I'll obey. Because God was up to something bigger. And in chapter 45, Joseph reveals what that is. He says, hey guys, God sent me ahead of you for the saving of many lives. I think he probably pointed a finger and said, including yours. And because of Joseph, they were able to keep on living. Well, verses 8 through about 11 explain how they would have been destitute were it not for Joseph's actions. He tells them, of course, then to go back and tell their father. And I want you to just draw your attention to the last part of the chapter now. Would you look there with me? They did what Joseph said. They went back and they tell their father. And verse 26 says that, Joseph was, excuse me, that Jacob was what? Stunned. This may very well be the most emotional chapter in the Bible. If you think about Jacob's reaction, hearing the news that after 22 years, oh, oh, oh Dad, by the way, 
we just got back from uh, Egypt and we, we got some grain and we we did all those things he told us to do and I, I just got to tell you that the guy that we've been dealing with you know that's been wanting this to send back Benjamin the guy that's been kind of tricking us with different things in our sacks of grain this guy that's toying with us and they believe is dead it's Joseph and can you imagine so you had Joseph on the one hand revealing himself then you have the brothers revealing to Jacob this is a very emotional passionate chapter Jacob doesn't believe him at first, but finally they, they convince him. And he says in verse 28, I am convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. As you read this chapter and you, and you see the, the different accounts in it, you, you suddenly realize Jacob and Joseph and those brothers, they were, were about a lot more than just food and grain and being a vice president in Egypt and... Those were secondary issues. The real primary reason that all of this happened was for the saving of many lives. And you begin to see that the heritage of Joseph did not lie in his job. Listen, church, listen. It didn't lie in his job. It didn't lie in his prestige or his position or even his possessions. His heritage rested and that he was sent ahead of all those other ones to save them. And that he would bring them back to Goshen and settle them. And then for the most part of his life, from about age 39 to about age 110, Joseph would take care of those family members and watch them grow and help them and their families and their descendants. Joseph's heritage was about people. It really wasn't about Egypt or being vice president, or about a pit or a prison. Joseph's heritage was about the Jewish nation. And, and, and I mean this in a physical human way. And saving their necks. What a man. What a man. In fact, just to let you know how much of his life was about people, when he brought them back, you'll see this in chapter 45, when he brought them back, he gave them the best part of Egypt. That takes a lot of security, doesn't it? That takes a lot of uh, maturity and a lot of confidence to give the folks who sold you and who tried to kill you the best part of Egypt. It's called Goshen. What I think is so odd is that in Joseph's actions in selling them in Goshen, we find hundreds of years later that very act probably proved to be the Egyptians' downfall. Because hundreds of years passed, they had the best part of the land, and they had, I guess, some. Uh, they were really involved in, in a lot of love in that group. They had kids galore, and they began to increase. And if you'll read Exodus 1, those very same Egyptians begin to say, Man, these Hebrews that, that Joseph placed in Egypt and in Goshen, they are just hard to deal with. And that very act of Joseph actually saved the nation and caused them to have the best part of Egypt. So where later, when Moses came along, they were all set and ready to be rescued and delivered by Moses and then be freed in their, in their night of redemption called the Exodus. All because Joseph and his, his simple actions that were very other-centered and focused on helping people. Joseph's heritage was all about people. And so I want to show you this, this chart that we've been looking at. And I want us to make sure that you get. I want to make sure you get one because I want you to see this chart. And so the ushers will pass the chart out to you that kind of sums up now Joseph's life. We're kind of on our last week of of Joseph. Next week I'll be out of town. Vince will be speaking for us, and he'll be wrapping up some things as well from Joseph's life. As we look at this this trek of Joseph's life uh, to a trusted life, I want you to take this chart I'm going to give you and just uh, maybe uh, put it on your fridge, put it on your mirror. 
take some notes on it, but this is how we see Joseph's life going. Now watch this, guys. And you'll see this on the chart as you get it. He started off with a simple vision. Remember that? He and his ten brothers. But he was faithful to that vision. He reported the truth. And you can see how all along the way, God was grooming Joseph for something bigger than himself. And Joseph proved faithful every step of the way. Whether he was under temptation in the sense of like tests, or whether he was resisting temptation, or whether for that 11, 12 year period when he was simply doing his job and it was reliable. Each step of the way, God was doing this. Watch this, guys. He was saying, Joseph, if you'll be faithful, just trust me, I'll, I'll make you faithful over many things if you'll be faithful to a few things. And Joseph's life is an awesome picture of that New Testament principle in Luke 16. Those who are faithful with a few will be faithful with much. And sure enough, when, when crunch time came, so to speak, who did God trust to save the very nation of the Jews through whom which Christ would come? Joseph. Now you think about it. That's a whole lot more responsibility than just a small prison somewhere, isn't it? Or maybe a, a military ruler's house like Potiphar. Suddenly, Joseph sees his life from the perspective that God had all along... That he was trusting him with a heritage, the line of Christ. You see, a heritage is really all about people. It's really about seeing ourselves as instruments of God, as arrows in the hand of the archer, so to speak. And the target, watch this church, the target is people. Let me just really kind of camp out here. The target is always people. I don't want anyone to miss this. When God, the archer, reaches back His hand and pulls the string of His bow, and let's say that you and I are the arrows, when He lets one of those go, His target is not a job. Okay, I want you to go to principal. I want you to go to Wells Fargo. I want you to go to John Deere. No, no, those are secondary things. God's target is always people. He takes those who are His ambassadors and He aims us in His sovereign wisdom toward others. I'll just pick some names out of the blue. There's Billy. Josh, man, I've got you pegged to minister to Billy. So he picks Josh, puts him in his bow, his sovereign providential bow. Is Josh, I need to place you in Billy's life. Now Josh is placed in a certain time in life, in a certain element, in a certain situation, not because God wants him to have a job at a certain place or because of a certain amount of money or, or a certain house. No, no. God's original target was this guy named Billy. And the sooner Josh is on God's page with that, the sooner Josh remembers the target. The sooner and quicker Josh is on the same page with God, and then God says, Wow, Josh, you're really faithful. When I shot you over there in Billy's life, you didn't know that it would be really tough for a while. You didn't know Billy wouldn't like you. You didn't know Billy would be your co-worker. He thought you'd just taken over his job and would be mad at you. But you were faithful, Josh. 
And you didn't know Billy's family was like totally dysfunctional. And you didn't know I was going to put your family in their family. And you didn't know their kids would come live with you for a while. You didn't know all that. But Josh, you were faithful. So when I dung you over there, and man, you were like ready to go. He just held true, Josh. Thanks. You know what? I'm going to use you in a greater way, Josh, because you've really proven faithful with what, I, what was initially yours. That's, that's what God's thinking. That's what He's doing. And He's not doing this with Josh, but He's got Todd in His bow. He's got Vince in His bow. Go all around the room. Guess what? We are all arrows in the sovereign, providential bow of the Almighty. And as He looks across the redemptive plan He's working, you know what He's doing? Scott. Do it with me. You can do that. You know, it's okay in church. Have a little fun. And he shoots Scott out. And Scott, the first call construction. Oh, no, no, wait. It's not about first call construction. That's right. It's about what God could do through Scott to the people that he comes in contact with through first call construction. Okay, got it, God. Or Steve. Ashworth Funding. You know what? It's really not about Ashworth Funding. It's about all the people that Steve gets to meet through Ashworth Funding. In fact, one of them's name was Jamie. I don't know if Jamie's here today. I met Jamie at a wedding uh, last weekend. I had never seen Jamie. He comes up and says, Hey, preacher. He says, uh, I'm glad to know you're doing the wedding. I'm like, Well, that's great, Jamie. I, can I ask how we know each other? You know, kind of like that. I've been coming to your church for like four weeks or so, and now I'm just really loving it. He said, Steve Cole invited me. I said, Oh. And I get introduced to, Here this guy is that God had placed in the path of Steve Coble. And see, when we're on the page of God, like, hey God, thanks for trusting me. I know the target is people. Then suddenly we find our life is a lot bigger than possessions and property and, and power and philosophy and prestige. It's not about that at all. It becomes about people. And the sooner we remember the target and live our life year after year with that in aim, just like Joseph, you know what? The quicker we'll be able to leave a heritage that lasts. Because your property and your money will all burn away. Someone's going to live in your house one day besides you. Someone's going to use your money. Someone's going to take your position at work. All those things will fade away. But you know what lasts forever? The Bible says the Word of God and the souls of men. That's all. And when the target of of individuals, families, and churches is the target that God set up, people, the saving of many lives, man, we we suddenly find ourselves elevated too as well and living life from a perspective and an angle that's far greater than perhaps what the world says or what other people say. Can I show you something else? Look at Genesis 50. This is born out again just a few chapters later. I won't read this uh, whole passage, but I want to draw your attention to it. Genesis chapter 50. Look with me. Jacob finally dies after coming back to the land of Goshen. His spirit has been revived and he's enjoying his last few years. But at some point, Jacob then finally dies. And guess what? Verse 15 tells us that his brothers got scared again. And I would have been in the same boat with them. Because Jacob was probably somewhat their shield, their protector. But Jacob's dead now, so what's Joseph going to do? He may finally get back at us, but verses 15 through about 21 show us again how Joseph knew that the real heritage he was leaving was not making sure that he was vindicated or that he looked right or the score was even, but that he took care of the people of God. It says here that they sent word, they were real worried in verse 15 and 16 about being paid back for the wrongs they did to Joseph. 
But the father left these instructions to forgive. And of course, Joseph had already done that. I like verse 18. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. That verse reminds me of Luke 15, doesn't it? You know what Luke 15 is? The prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? When he came back after years of wandering, perhaps months, we're not sure, but there was a time away of, of, of being away from the father's intentions and the father's home. He said, just make me a slave. And what did the father do? He says, hey, I can't turn you into slave because you're a son. Welcome home. And what does Joseph do here? He says, guys, don't be afraid. He doesn't answer their question to be truthful. We're not going to to make you a slave. The truth is, only God can do things like that. He says, am I in the place of God to get you back, to make you a slave so that things would be, quote unquote, even? Look what he says in verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Suddenly he does this again, doesn't he? He elevates the perspective to accomplish what is now being done. Say it with me. The saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. You know what you could write over that verse? People. Joseph said, hey guys, don't worry. I'll take care of you. He saw his entire life up to that point and even after as taking care of them. I'll make sure you're okay. I've been put in this place with these resources and this prestige. Not because that's an end in itself, but I've been put here to make sure that you survive. So relax. I got your back. That's the kind of guy, that's the kind of man who leaves a heritage that can be passed on, isn't it? Truly, Joseph found his life to be one of trust. God trusted him. He trusted God. And the end result of that kind of perspective and focus was one that left the nation of Israel with a great heritage. If you're wondering what you can do to live that way, to acquire that kind of trust from God, to live with a heritage in mind, as opposed to perhaps, you know, just a hobby. I would ask you just to do one simple thing. Remember the target. It's right there on your chart. And what is the target? Say it with me. People. Hey church, people are always the target. I'm going to repeat myself, okay? People are always the target. In fact, would you say that with me? Here we go. People are always the target. Now, if you're saying to yourself, Oh, Todd, that's just an emotional string you're jerking on right now. No, it's not. That's Theology 101. For Luke 19.10 says about our Lord and His entire mission, For the Son of Man has come seeking and saving those who are lost. So guess what, church? People, say it with me, are always the target. You see, I want you to understand something about God. Since the beginning of time, up to the very present moment of the 21st century, God has always been about redeeming a people unto Himself. Okay? Talk about theology. 
mean, this is a perspective on the on the history of the world that often we don't get in in, in our in our current school system, and some churches shy away from. It. But the truth is, God's working on a plan a lot bigger than First Family Church. Hallelujah. We're just a small speck in the timeline of God's redemptive plan. He has always been about redeeming people to Himself. Let me show you what I mean. You might want to jot this down. I'll give you a quick history of the world in, in like two seconds. Okay? Let me show you scripturally how God has done that and how He's always shown Himself to be uh, proactive and uh, the initiator with mankind. Look at this. Remember the garden in Genesis? He walked with man in the cool of the day. And when Adam sinned, who came looking for whom, by the way? God came looking, didn't He? Hey, Adam! I'm not done. You're not running that easily. Where are you? And when Adam sinned, and God provided Himself a sacrifice. You go down to the tabernacle in Exodus, when those Israelites sinned, God brought them a tabernacle, and you talk about set up and tear down. Wow! That would have been a nightmare, right? But what was God's point in that? Guys, I want to be available to you! I am with you. The pillar and the, the cloud, the pillar of fire, those were all ways that God was saying, hey, I am with you. You go down to the promised land in Joshua. He finally settles His people in, in the land of Canaan. They've, and then later as the Old Testament history passes, they build a temple. Why? So that God could be with His people. You go to the manger in Matthew. When God sent Himself, Philippians 2 says, in the form of a man. And that little crying infant was God. Come to man. Emmanuel. God with us. You go to the cross in Luke when He stretched out His arms. And He says, I want a relationship with you this much. And so He gives His life as a sacrifice. And then in Acts, He leads us the Holy Spirit. He said, I will not leave you comfortless. I'm not going to abandon you. So from the beginning of time all the way to, to May 20th, 2007, guess what? God is initiating and proactively seeking to redeem a people to Himself. That means He's after you. Because you've got a target on your back. The target, say it with me, is always people. Now, I say that to you, not that God's trying to get you. I say that because God loves you. And I don't know who's listening to my voice this morning, who may have just checked into church. Maybe last night you found out the worst news of your life. Who knows what that could be? Perhaps an illness in your family or maybe you found out your spouse is leaving you. And your parent is falling ill that's not supposed to live. I, mean, I don't there could be all kinds of folks here who said maybe last night, Good night, I, I gotta find some help. Well, this God thing, what's what's this God thing? And somehow in God's sovereign providence he's crossed your paths now with this bald headed preacher who's a little long winded and a church that really cares about you. And so you're hearing for the first time that that God is seeking to redeem a people to Himself. That's exactly right, church. And what He asks from people is that we respond in faith and just believe. That's how that whole relationship is started. It's not based on works. It's not based on anything you do. It's based on responding to what God has already done in the person of Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you've never responded to the work of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. If you never said, Lord, I believe that Jesus Christ is God and that He died for me to, to enable me to relate to God. I believe that. If you've never done that, that's the first place to start. Respond to the overtures of the Almighty. 
And you know what's so neat? You can do that right there in your seat. Some churches have invitations. Some crusades will have people walk the aisle. Those are all fine. But the truth is, God is not limited by our man-made methods. And right there in your seat, right now, you can pray and ask the Lord to be your one and only Savior. I must warn you, God will not be added to a list. The Gospel is exclusive in its claims. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. It's not just another good idea. He is the only right idea. But in a heart of faith that says, God, I believe that Jesus is your Son and that His death is the only way my sins can be forgiven, I believe. You say, I don't understand all about the Bible. That's okay right now. We'll get you there. I'm not sure what Trinity means or what do you mean by theology. Don't worry about it. Just respond to the love of God as revealed in Jesus. And trust the cross of Christ as your only way to heaven. When that happens, He births you into His family. You become what John 1.12 says is a, a, a son of God or a daughter of God. Spiritually speaking, you're born again, John 3 says. And that begins your, your journey with the Holy Spirit inside of you. And if you've done that just now, perhaps even while I'm talking, someone said, Todd, that's what I'm crying out. I want God to save me. When we're done this morning, there'll be a chance for you to let me know that. I just want to encourage you and give you the boldness and the freedom now as the pastor here. Just indicate that on your care card. There's a little feedback card you have. You can write that on there. You'll come see me afterwards in the front. I'll never embarrass you publicly. I'm not going to trick you in a backdoor way and say, okay, you know, I don't do that to you. But as your heart right now is crying out to God, to respond to His proactive overtures that we've seen all through history. When we're done today, would you come talk to me? I'll be right down here. Or maybe write me a note on the feedback card. I'll have to chat with you later about how you can grow in your walk with the Lord. You see, guys, that's really what God is up to. And as a church, we must respond the same way. With people as our target. Let me introduce you to some people who live that way. People in our church who have lived from the perspective of God. They've elevated their their vision. And they're not brought down by the mundane. Criticism doesn't stick. Bad times don't bother them. They see themselves as divinely appointed by God to to do some real people work at First Family. I'll introduce you to them, okay? They're all the folks who work in our Kids Central Ministries. They work with all the kids from birth to fifth grade. And you must be called by God, amen, to work in those ministries. But today we've chosen to, to recognize these workers, especially today, because it fits so well with what our theme is today. That the saving of many lives. How God's targeting His people. And you know what? That means little people. Amen? I don't want to know, if you're here this morning, we did this in the first service, but in this service, if you work at any, in any way with the ministry from birth to um, uh, through fifth grade, whether it means you work an hour a month, an hour a quarter, whether you work a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, or no matter what you do, but if you work in any way with those ages, would you stand? Someone lead the way and just start standing. There you go. We've got a gift for you. So I'm going to ask the, some of our kids to come to the front. And they're going to give you a special mint. Because we want to thank you for your commitment. Uh, you like that, don't you? Well, you can give thanks to that for, to Shalina. Uh, Shalina, you're back in the back, right? Shalina heads up all of our ministries from birth to fifth grade. And, and if you're not standing, she's probably eyeing you. She said, Todd, stress that anyone who does anything in any way with little kids just to stand. So I'm just going to ask you, just kind of pass them out, guys, on that side. Great. Kids doing a good job there. 
And I want to thank you guys for having a heart for little people. Because they matter, don't they? I know sometimes when they're just a few months and they're crying and pooping, you're thinking, man, does this really matter in the kingdom? It really does. Can we thank these folks that are standing? Once you get your mint, you can have a seat. There's some other folks as well who have this same kind of lifestyle. There are those who lead all of our small groups for our youth group. It's called the Net Student Ministry, and Mike oversees that. And I want to ask you, if you lead a small group or work in our Net Student Ministry at all, would you just stand? Amen. Just go ahead and stand. Somewhere, 30-some may have gone to graduations, but Mike has something for you as well. I want to thank you guys for giving time every week to work with our student ministry. I really appreciate that a lot. I know Mike does. I call these our puberty people, you know. And doesn't it take a, the right kind of person to work with them, right? Amen. Can we thank all of our youth workers for their help each week? I want to thank one more set of people, too. Um, I'll qualify this because there's a lot more folks in our church that work and they have a people focus and I wrote and they set up, tear down, I mean claim. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying those folks don't have people in mind. I'm not saying that at all. So don't, if you hear that, you're hearing me wrong. But we just selected today to just honor some uh, of our small group leaders especially. And those who lead our adult small groups, the groups of which the people at First Family get their primary care and connection. And I want to say to you, if you're attending First Family, we're so glad you've been attending, but it will only be limited. First Family really won't be what you think it, what, what it could be until you really get in a small group. I'll just be real frank with you. That's where all the shepherds... You talk to anybody in our church. Well, I think about 70 to 80% of our church is in a small group right now, a lighthouse. And you'll find that the meals and the, the connections, the, the, the support is really in those. So I just want to encourage you that as you see these leaders stand, I'd hunt them down and say, hey, man, can we connect some way? But these lighthouse leaders give up their home and, and, their, and their time every week, especially from like August till about May. And they're responsible in a, in a godly way for the kind of shepherding that First Time has become known for. So if you host or lead a lighthouse, if you open your home or you open your life as a leader for our lighthouse ministries, would you please stand? These are the folks that work with our big people. <laughs> Little people, puberty people, now big people. Will you stand? Now, I don't have a gift for you. So, Shalina and Mike made me look pretty bad here. I appreciate that. I should have got some. But you know, the truth is, on purpose, I didn't. I almost did this year. I thought, well, I'll get another stationary set. But the truth is, you know where your real, where your real impact is felt? Where your real reward is? It's in what the Bible says. It's, it's from the lives of the people you minister to. And I want to encourage you. When you meet with your group here as we close out another season of Lighthouses, um, find your reward in the people at your group that have grown in their spiritual life. Hey, groups, if you're here looking at your leader, tell them all the ways that God's used them. Because their target is you. I want to say thanks to all of you Lighthouse leaders. Some in 830 service and these kind of wrap up our, our lessons. But from the back to the front, thank you for hosting or leading what is probably the most essential ministry of First Family. Can we thank our Lighthouse leaders and hosts? Amen. You know, if you're sitting there looking at and thinking, man, I, I couldn't lead a lighthouse. I couldn't lead a small group. I couldn't open my home. I can hardly get on my own home sometimes, you know. I, I, I couldn't do that. Besides, Todd, I, I'm insignificant. 
My life doesn't really matter. I don't even know that many people. I'm kind of new to Anthony. I'm new to First Family. Or maybe you're saying, Todd, I've been here for 20 years and nobody knows me yet. You've got all these reasons you think you can't do something significant for God. But you know what? I would ask you to change your definition of significance because sometimes we think that crowds means significance. And the truth is just the opposite. When people are your target, when you live to leave a heritage of people, it can be one person. It can be two people. Amen? But when you have a people focus, when that's your target, then even one can make a massive difference. In fact, watch this simple video clip about what one simple witness did for the last 100 years. Watch and we'll talk and close and we're done. Have you ever wondered whether your witness can make a difference? Edward Kemble was a simple Sunday school teacher in the 1800s. One day, he led one of his students to Christ. That student was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody became a great evangelist of the late 1800s. His crusades were responsible for thousands of people becoming Christians. That would be impressive, but it did not end there. At one of Moody's evangelistic meetings, he counseled a man named J. Wilbur Chapman. Chapman became Moody's friend and partner. He later hired a young man named Billy Sunday to help him organize some meetings. Sunday eventually struck out on his own, and his revivals were the great evangelistic events of the early 1900s. Sunday helped organize a group in Charlotte, North Carolina, called the Charlotte Businessman's Club. That group hosted a series of revival meetings in 1934, and at one of those services, a young man named Billy Graham was saved. Since that time, Billy Graham's crusades and ministries have led millions to Christ around the world. God used the witness of one man more than a hundred years ago to set into motion a series of events to spread the gospel throughout the world. What if Edward Kimball had seen that first time as an insignificant witness? What if he hadn't shared his faith with D.L. Moody? How would our world be different? What kind of a difference can you make? You're never too small. Amen? And so what First Sam is looking for is just some Edward Kimballs who will just tell one person, who will just be significant to one other life. We're looking for some Josephs who will see all of their surroundings and their entire journey through the lens of God's redemptive plan and would say, no matter where your job lands you or your income finds you or your prestige, your power, regardless of that, who would say, God has done all this for the saving of many lives. Because people are always the target. And the more of us that are the arrows God can put in His bow of providence, stretch tightly and do what? And shoot you to whoever He desires to reach and to be that ambassador. Then the more steam the kingdom gains, the more impact God is able to have. Because of people. He uses people to reach people. I trust He'll use you this week. These next seven days. Would you be an arrow for the Lord? Would you elevate your perspective? Would you refuse to let criticism and, and difficult times stick? Take off the Velcro. Get rid of the bitterness. Man, just put yourself in the bow of God and say, Hey God, the Almighty Archer, shoot me where you will. And let him select the target 
and fire and let's live for God's incredible redemptive historical plan. Amen? And may First Family then become the kind of church known not for a building. I mean, who cares where we meet? Amen? Or for maybe a style. Who cares what kind of style we have? Or for human and cultural things. Man, chunk that whole thinking. Let First Family be known for partnering with God in what has been His historical redemptive plan. The saving of many lives. People matter. That's why we're here. May we mirror the heart of God this week. Let's pray.